We're coming up to the end of this letter. We're not at the end just yet, but it's the end of the, the body of the letter. First Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to read for us verses 16 through 22. So I'm backing up just a little bit to some verses we've already covered. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 16. It says there, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Heavenly Father, again, we recognize our total dependence on you, whether we feel it at times or not. We need you by your spirit to be working in our hearts. As we look to your word, we pray that the message would be clear. We pray that we would think about the ways that it leads us to change and to respond. We pray you would help us be attentive to your truth. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The church of the Thessalonians is one of the all-star churches, if you will, in the New Testament. There's really not a whole lot of things that he wants to correct in, in a major way. If you go back with me to chapter one, I just want to review how this letter started in verse two. Paul says to them, and he's writing on behalf of himself with Silvanus and Timothy, but he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to describe how this church has not only received the word of God, but they've received it even in much affliction. They've been an example to churches in that area of Macedonia and Achaia. This is a, a healthy church, but it's a new church. And so part of Paul's heart in writing the letter was to connect with them again. He wanted, remember, he wanted to see them in person. He couldn't make it. Timothy gets sent. Timothy comes back with a report. And then he writes in this letter. And part of what he wants is for the church to remain faithful, stay strong. You have the churches in the book of Revelation. There's a letter to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Churches that are being commended for some good things and warned against some dangers, but not many generations later, history will tell us those churches stopped existing. We don't want that to be the case in our church or any other church. We want faithful gospel preaching churches to stay faithful and to stay strong. And I think that's part of what Paul's heart is, not just in the whole letter, but as we come to the end of the letter. 
the way we've been looking at it is that it gives us a number of attributes that God wants for his people. In other words, he wants these things in your own life personally, and he wants it in our life corporately as a church. If you don't have this in your own life, if none of us have it, we're not going to have it as a church. You can't show up to a church and say, I want a church like that, but I don't want to be like that. Starting, you can go back to chapter 5. Just kind of reviewing a little bit of what we've already covered. Starting in verse 12, Paul says that a healthy church is one in which the members respect the elders. The elders are are working hard and serving the church. The end of verse 13 says they're a church that is at peace with one another. In verse 14, we find that God wants an admonishing church. He wants an encouraging church. He wants a helping church. He wants a patient church. Verse 15 reminded us that God wants a loving church. No one is to repay anyone evil for evil. This is a church that is seeking to do good in the church and outside the church. And then verses 16 to 18 told us that God wants a church that is joyful and prayerful and thankful. These are to be enduring markers in God's people. And the end of verse 18 tells us that this is not just good advice. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So this is how you as a Christian and this is how we as a church glorify Christ. Our focus this morning is verses 19 through 22. And we're going to add to that list three more attributes. Let me jump right in and start unpacking it. And then we'll get to what I hope is a helpful summary Verse 19, very short statement, all of this very terse, if you know that word, direct, pithy, very succinctly he says, do not quench the spirit. And I imagine in in your translations, just like in mine, spirit is capitalized because he's not talking about the human spirit, he's talking about the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Do not quench him, is the spirit thirsty? No, no. Quench means to extinguish, to suppress. It's used for something that's hot to be rapidly cooled. And in English and in Greek, the word is mostly associated with fire because a fire can be put out. You you get a fire extinguisher. You quench the fire. A fire can be turned off. And for us, fire might be something pretty. It might be something useful for marshmallows. But think about biblical culture. Fire was much more than that. They used it to cook, obviously, but it was the primary source of light and it was the primary source of heat. It was a necessary part of society. And that could have been the small fire of a candle or an oil lamp that every home would have, the larger fire of a handheld torch, or even the larger fires that were used by armies in war. Fire was part of the technology of the time. We have our own technology today, and there are things we hope don't get shut off. You don't want someone showing up at your house saying, I need to turn off your gas, or I need to turn off your electricity, or I need to turn off, uh, what am I missing, your water, or your internet, God forbid. (laughs) Any of you who've lost any utility like that for an extended period of time know how inconvenient it is, and you feel, you understand how dependent you are on it. Kids don't get that. I remember one time in my parents' house, we were older and we lost power for our house only or somehow a section of the block for more than a day. And we realized that our neighbor had power. 
Like he's some, some dividing line. He had power and this, this house didn't. So we did what every neighbor did and asked for an outlet and we ran an extension cord and he plugged in the fridge because everything's going to go bad. You need power. Your home depends on these kinds of things. Well, even more so than any modern utility, our lives depend on the power of God that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, but it's also sad to realize that that can be shut off. We can quench the fire of the Holy Spirit and sadly may not even categorize it as an inconvenience. Now obviously the Holy Spirit is eternal God, so you can't kill the Spirit, he can't be erased, he can't be turned off in terms of his essence or his existence, but he can be suppressed in terms of his function or his effect in our lives. And we need to be careful that we don't simply think about Christianity as a ticket to heaven. You know, I believe in Jesus. He died for my sins. I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. God, God counts me righteous by the righteousness of Christ. And now I'm done. I don't need anything else. Thank you, God, for getting me in. That's not how the Christian life works. Christian life begins with the Holy Spirit. Paul said that in chapter one. He said he preached to the church and his preaching was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then it was the Holy Spirit who worked in the Thessalonians so they would receive the message with joy. But that's not the extent of his work. When Christ saves you, his spirit gets placed within you and what is he doing? What comes after salvation or justification? Sanctification. That's not a one-time act. That's the ongoing process of making each of us look more and more like Christ. That's the, that's the continual daily um, power over sin that we're growing in. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. And that's gonna happen for the rest of our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we all, all of us, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's the Christian life. There's a glory of God in us, but we're moving up that notch. And whenever we get to the top to the day, we see Christ. Like we sang, we'll stand before him complete one day, but we're not there yet. In the meantime, we're being moved from one degree of glory to another, and the end of verse uh, 18, 2 Corinthians 3 says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, he is, not a force, but he is, as a person, the dominating element in the life of a believer. But we need to cooperate. Every parent knows the battle of getting a toddler into his or her car seat when they don't want to be in the car seat. You're trying to do something that's necessary and good for them and they fight back. Well, we're charged to cooperate with the spirit rather than fight back or to use the term here, quench his work. Ephesians 5 says we are to be filled with the Spirit, and it's contrasted there with being filled or drunk with wine. So he's saying to them, hey, don't be controlled by alcohol. You need to be controlled by the Spirit. In Galatians 5, we're told to walk by the Spirit so that we, w- so that we won't gratify the flesh. Galatians 5 also says we need to live by the Spirit. We need to keep in step with the Spirit. 
And as we do that, the Spirit conforms us more and more to the image of Christ, and he produces in us fruit. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So don't quench that work. The question is, how do you do that? How can we be functionally working against what the Spirit is trying to accomplish in our lives? There's a variety of ways we could answer that question. Those of you who took taken the class, you would have spent some time studying the Holy Spirit and what he does. So you can, it's a good question to think about. What does he do? How do I act against that? Uh, but our focus today is gonna be Paul's focus. And that's what he continues in verse 20. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20. Do not despise prophecies. I don't think Paul has moved on to a new distinct command. I think he's giving an expression or an example of what he just said in verse 19. I think they're parallel commands. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. What is the instrument that the spirit of God uses to work in your life? It's the word of God. Whether it's coming from a book, whether it's coming from a phone, whether it's coming from a friend, whether it's coming from your own personal reading, whether it's coming from a pulpit or in a classroom, the truth of God is what is used by his spirit to make us more like Christ. Jesus, John 17, 17, he prays the Father and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is, the, 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 to use Peter's language, the milk or Hebrews, the language of Hebrews, this is the meat that grows us spiritually. The word of God is the sanctifying, is the primary sanctifying tool in your life. This is how the spirit works. And that's why from the very beginning, the people of God gathered, not just as a Christian club because they cared about a man named Jesus, they gathered also to be dedicated to what Jesus taught, and that is the word of God. Acts 2.42, this is right, a day of Pentecost comes, 3,000 people are converted, they're baptized, and they devote themselves to, one of those devotions is the teaching of the apostles. The apostles learned from Jesus. Jesus said, you'll get the Holy Spirit. He'll bring to your mind all that I have taught, and they taught it, and they made proclamation. That's what's behind the end of verse 20, the word prophecies. Do not despise prophecy. A prophecy is basically a proclamation of God's truth. In the time of the apostles, God was continuing to give new revelation because he needed to, to complete what the people needed to know. You can actually read 1 Thessalonians, I think 2 Thessalonians as well. Paul will say something like, this you don't know yet, but I'm giving it to you by a revelation from the Lord. There's continuing revelation. There were some times where a prophet might say something on behalf of God that actually foretold the future. So a guy named Agabus in the book of Acts says that to Paul about him being bound in Jerusalem. But that doesn't always have to be the case. Prophecy is not always the future. It's the proclamation or the explanation of a message God has already given. And that's prophecy today. It, maybe it's more in line with what you see on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches in Acts chapter two and his sermon is an explanation of the minor prophets. He goes to Joel. We call them the prophecies. Ephesians 4 says the church is built on the foundation of Christ as the cornerstone and the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Where do these prophecies come from? 2 Peter 1, 20 says no prophecy originates with man. It's not that a man said, ah, this is gonna be good people to know. Ultimately, it's that that man was moved by the Holy Spirit. 
That's how the scriptures came to be. So the, the Holy Spirit produces God's written word, and now he works through the word proclaimed so that people are brought to salvation, and so that people are made more and more like Christ. That's what Paul's getting at here. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. There are people who want to use these verses as a defense for abuses of spiritual things. So you have churches that will speak in tongues, churches where people are going around making prophetic declarations, churches where they invite prophets from other cities to come and make, give prophecies over the church. And whenever someone decides to question that, they say, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Well, just in response to that, I want to point out uh, briefly that there's nothing here in the context that would indicate that Paul's main goal in these verses is to make a defense of some spiritual gifts. I think if there really was some defense he wanted to make, he probably would have given another paragraph to it. He has no problem addressing specific issues. It probably wouldn't have been some short tack on to the end of the letter. And even if someone out there believes that we should be chasing certain spiritual gifts, we can't use these two verses to mean that there should be no limitations on those gifts because in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives specific limitations. Chapters 11 to chapter 14, here's the way you should do it. And that was for the church at that time. As you come to the end of the letter, all we're seeing is Paul giving general commands for the health and for the longevity and for the effectiveness of the church. Don't despise prophecies. Don't quench the spirit. Maybe we could speculate a little bit that the church is enjoying the company and it's easy to gather as a group of people and then begin to focus on other things. We enjoy the company, we enjoy the coffee, we enjoy the bread, we enjoy other things that we find in common, but we can drift very easily from the teaching of the word of God. A church that begins to minimize the foundational component in the life and power of the church is a church that no longer is going to be effective. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, the church is the pillar. It's the support of the truth. That's why churches exist, to proclaim the truth of God. So I've given you the principle up front, but for those of you taking notes, let me just pack it into a phrase. The attribute God wants for his church is powerful declaration. God wants powerful declaration. Don't question the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Maybe he's speaking to the leaders who are tempted to, to shrink that or, or remove that for other things that people like more. Maybe he's speaking to the people themselves who are sitting and, and are no longer receiving the messages. God's power is unleashed in the lives of his people when his word is declared. That was a foundational truth for the early church and it's one that's seemingly completely lost on evangelical culture in our country. We have churches that are much more concerned about being popular than about preaching God's word. It's very easy to find churches where the focus is something other than the word of God. You can find more charismatic churches. They care about miracles. They care about uh, ecstatic experiences. And you can find churches saying, no, 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 that's not us. But then they care about the business aspects. They care about professionalism. They care about production value. We should praise God for big churches. We should praise God when there's a multitude of people who gather because he's worked in their lives and they love the truth. But that is different from a church that's large because they've adopted a methodology that simply appeals to a broader audience. Jesus said there's two ways. There's the broad way, that leads to destruction, the wide door, 
and there's the narrow way. And if you want a church that appeals to the wide way, if you want a church that appeals to the natural man, then you have to minimize the word of God. You can still use Bible verses, you can still use Bible phrases, you can still use Christian catchphrases, but the word of God will no longer be centered. It will no longer be what forms the methodology and what dictates the message. And so some churches do this in the name of being winsome, in the name of being attractive to the world. They end up watering down the message of Christ, and as a result, they strip the church of the power of God. They have quenched the spirit. I remember a group from our church went to a conference and there were a group of people, uh, it was actually a women's conference and they said they enjoyed it. We're hearing teaching, being edified in, in the truth and there was a visitor there who'd come from a more charismatic church where they're much more ecstatic and gifts and miracles, that kind of thing and they asked her, what did you think? And she said, it was nice to be there and to listen but you know, they don't have the spirit. Well, what's... what you have there is a confusion of what the Spirit's primary work is. If God is gonna nourish us with his word, then we need to give ourselves to the word, teach his word his way. Imagine if I decide I need to give my kids healthier meals. I want them to grow in their appreciation of, of, of vegetables. And so tomorrow for dinner, I decide I'm going to put vegetables on their plate. I'm gonna, and I'm going to make them good. I'm going to grill them over the fire. Grilled asparagus and, and grilled onion and, and roast, uh, roast some carrots, roast some uh, broccoli. And then I'm gonna put some salt, a little bit of butter. Like I want them to enjoy and appreciate the beauty and the taste of vegetables. But right after I cook them, someone says, you know what? Put a ladle of nacho cheese on top. <laughs> nacho cheese is it's good, tastes good. <laughs> but it's not vegetables, right? Oh, your kids aren't gonna eat that. Give them this. What happened? Is that gonna help my kids love the veggies? No. They're just gonna cover everything with nacho cheese. They're gonna love nacho cheese. You don't need God's help to love nacho cheese, okay? That's, that's, most of us enjoy that. But that's the kind of thing that happens in, in many culturally um, acceptable churches. You don't find a people there who love the word of God. You don't find a people there who've been trained by the word of God. They've been conditioned to show up and to enjoy coming, but for some other reason, be it relationships or entertainment value. And then what you get is a pastoral team that needs to fill the demand in order to have people coming back. Hey, they like it. Do it again. Let's do it more. And a common thing, you see it more and more, especially in the summer, is churches doing movie series. Summer at the movies. It's it's common. You show up at church and everybody gets popcorn and you watch a movie and the pastor comes after and he gives a little devotional based on the movie. Here's how the movie shows us some things about God. And, and, and that's not, again, we're grateful for things in culture that, that might conform to the word of God, but you're no longer teaching from the word. You're preaching, at best, a sermon slightly inspired by the word, but it's mainly inspired by the movie. And so what you get over time is churches that don't even open their Bibles. Or people don't have to bring them anymore. And people show up and the culture is, no, no, we have to listen to the man because he's the guy in charge and whatever he says or whatever she says, doesn't matter. They're in charge and it doesn't have to be backed up by scripture. And that's sad because then you have a church that grows numerically 
You have leaders convinced that they're honoring God in their evangelism, but really it's a church that has separated itself from the power of God among them, which is the word of God, the prophetic proclamation of God's word. I read an article just this past week. Uh, The article was put out by World News Group, WNG.org, I think, written by Carl Truman. Someone sent it to me. He's a Christian professor, Christian author, originally from England. Now he's in the States. He's talking about this very thing. One of the verses he mentions in that article is 1 Corinthians where Paul says, this is how an unbeliever should feel when they go to church. It will be alien. And he says that when they hear the prophecies being made, their heart will be convicted because of their sin. He titled the article, Turning Worship into a Clown Show. You know, such an insightful reminder about what God wants in a church. Now, on the one side, you can look at other churches, but we need to also think about this principle in our own hearts. And we need to recognize that what the world will tend to do, even in the name of Christ, we will do on a personal level as well. We can take things that we value and that we like, and we can slowly begin to elevate them over the word of God. And so we take podcasts that are loosely related to Christianity or, or, or more connected to political values that we like, and we allow those things to replace the word of God. We can even take good things that God's made, like Christian music or Christian movies, and say, no, no, this is what fuels my life, but it's not the word of God. We can take books on leadership. We can have inspirational stories and assume that that's gonna have the same impact in our hearts than the word of God. Some sentimental video someone sent you online some article out of Chicken Soup for the Soul, that is not going to do for you today in empowering to do God's work. It's not gonna do the same thing for you that the word of God will do. So let's not despise the powerful proclamation of God's word in our churches and in our daily lives. We go and we feed on the word of God. God wants a people marked by powerful declaration. As we continue reading, we come to a second attribute. Attribute number two is thoughtful discretion. Thoughtful discretion. Everyone at church has a responsibility. Someone had a, Mario had a responsibility to read, to pray. The music team has a responsibility to lead us in music. I've got the responsibility right now to teach from the word of God. What's your responsibility? Well, I gotta sit there and, and stay quiet and make sure I don't get caught falling asleep. That's my responsibility. We know it's more than that. Your responsibility is to hear and to evaluate what's being said. It is to test. It is to have the heart of the Bereans. When Paul shows up and he's preaching Christ and he's using the Old Testament and it says, the Bere- Acts uh, 17, the Bereans are noble-minded. It says they examine the scriptures daily to see this is what he's preaching. He's right, he's right. That's what it says if, do you have your, if you're in Thessalonians 5, just go over a couple, maybe a few pages, to 2 Timothy. Excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. It 
2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, I charge you by his appearing in his kingdom, I charge you, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready, Timothy, in season and out of season. There's, I've heard pastors say, we don't know what, what he means by season, but you're either in it or you're not. All the time, preach the word. As you do so, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You can go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter five. With that in mind, with, with the reminder that Timothy is to teach the word because there are false teachers teaching lies and myths. Look at how he follows up in verse 21. Do not despise prophecies, says verse 20, but test everything. Test everything. Two, two synonyms for discretion would be discernment and discrimination. In general, we live with the idea that discrimination is a bad thing. And there are some kinds of discrimination that are wrong, it's sinful. But if someone comes knocking on your door today in jeans and a t-shirt, and they go, hey, I'm here from your internet company, I gotta check your wires in your house, you're gonna let them in the house? I hope not, at least not right away, you're gonna wanna see something. Is there a truck outside, is there some ID badge? That's, that's a form of discrimination. You're, you're thinking, you're evaluating. When I refuse to respond to an email from a Nigerian prince, that's discrimination. When I refuse to give some guy who calls me personal information because he has information about life insurance policies, that's discrimination. Something's not good here, so I'm not doing that. That's discernment. When you pick your fantasy football team, you're being discriminatory. When you decide whether or not to go to a restaurant that got you sick last time, you're, you're being discriminatory. When you decide how to invest your money, you're, you're being discriminatory. You're, you want the best possible outcome and you don't want to be depending on something that could hurt you. And so when it comes to hearing the word of God and receiving the word of God, God says you need to discriminate. You need to distinguish. Is this healthy, sound teaching? Is it unhealthy teaching? Is it false teaching? That's not being judgmental in the negative sense. That's being discerning. You don't just listen to a preacher or to a Bible teacher because you like the way he or she sounds or because you agree with the person. You need to make sure this person is speaking the truth. So test everything. Evaluate it. The standard uh, that you use to measure is not your preference. It's the word of God. That's part of what we have in our membership covenant. You're, you're coming up, corporate worship matters, and, and you come to me, I have a question, or did you say this, and people will ask me something, you're going to the word of God. Oh, if I messed up, my mistake. I'm, 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 we're, we're subject to the word of God. We're called to be discerning. We're called to be watchful. We're called to be alert. In the book of 1 John, it says, test the spirits. 
This principle of discernment and discretion applies to every aspect of life. He says, test everything, but how much more should it apply to the teaching of God's word? Test everything. Where a church is declaring the word of God, the result will be a discerning population, a discerning people. Discernment takes time. We teach our kids things. Don't talk to strangers. Don't run into the street. And there are caveats, because mom, you talk to strangers at at the grocery store all the time. Mom, you cross the street all the time. We understand there's a discernment. You have to learn about these things. Paul says, test everything. And when you find that which is good, when you find that which is useful, when you find that which works in accordance with the spirit of God in your life, you find that which shapes you to be more like Christ, verse 21, test everything, hold fast what is good. Hold fast. Don't let it go. Cling to that. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Why are there, um, I forgot the word now, sectas, what is it in English? Cults, why are there cults? Why are there Christian cults? Not baby horses, cults, C-U-L-T-S, okay? Why are there cults? Christian cults, because they start with the truth of God, and then they start moving ever so slowly until a group says, no, this is what we believe, even though it's in contradiction to the scriptures. You need to stay fast. He says, hold fast the confession of our hope. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Our authority is scripture alone. That's why the reformers stood on those principles, because they had strayed from the truth. The word there for for holding fast to what is good is used in Acts 27 in a nautical sense. It says, we made for the beach, we directed, and the point is, the course was held fast. This book is to be what sets the course of your life and what sets the course of the life of our church. And if we give ourselves to that, verse 22 gives us one of the results. It's the opposite. You find what's good, hold fast. Verse 22 says the opposite, abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from every form of evil. If you've ever, you may have heard the King James version of this. It says abstain from every appearance of evil. And that can give you a a, a wrong impression about what Paul is saying. There are people who will use that translation to, to say, you know, you shouldn't do anything that someone else might think is sinful. So don't even appear to be sinning. We know there's a wisdom in guarding our hearts. We know there's a wisdom in honoring the consciences of others. But if we're trying to stay away from any possible accusation of sin in the world, we're not going to be successful. In fact, Jesus wasn't successful because he ate with sinners and with tax collectors and the Pharisees accused him. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying abstain from anything that's evil that someone might see you doing. He's saying abstain from evil in whatever form it appears to you. With regard to teaching, he means stay away from false teaching. Don't sit under that for an extended period of time. That's evil. That's unhelpful. That's unhealthy. That's not sound. Connected to that, don't give in to the message or to the culture that false teachers are breeding because that's going to lead to worldliness. That's going to lead to sin in your own life. Where you find a group that is relaxed about the Bible, then you'll find a group that's relaxed about sin. 
where you find a group that wants a message that appeals to the world, you're going to find a group that's not going to be talking about repentance and judgment. You might hear churches talk about self-improvement. You might hear churches talk about making your life better through finances, relationships, emotional health, all these things, but they're not going to be talking about the war we're in with sin in our life. They're not going to be talking about following Jesus means taking up your cross daily. They're not going to be promoting the message that says all of humanity is damned, condemned before God, and there's only one way to be saved through the sacrificial and atoning work of Jesus Christ. But that's the message of the Bible. If you want to be cooperating with the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you give yourself to the word of God and you pursue righteousness and you pursue holiness. And Jesus said, you cut off an arm, you gouge out an eye, metaphorically speaking, to fight sin. This is the direction of God's people and it brings me to the final attribute for today. God wants his people to be marked by a powerful declaration, by a thoughtful discretion, and lastly, by a visible distinction. A visible distinction. If you hold fast to that which is good, and if you abstain in the grace of God from every form of evil, you will be distinct from the world. You're gonna look different. Your buddies are gonna go do things that you're not gonna join them in doing. Your neighbor is gonna wanna talk about things that you're not gonna be comfortable talking about. You will look different. And in some ways that manifests just physically. You, you, you dress differently. But beyond that, it's gonna be manifested in the manner of your life. The, the Spirit of God has made his people alive in Christ. We're dead to sin and sin is dead to us. So there's a change. Not a final change, not a complete change practically, but there's a change in the direction of our lives. When, when there's sin, there's confession, there's repentance. We, we need to make this right. When we're sinned against, we forgive. God said to the Israelites, and he says in the epistles of Peter, you will be holy for I am holy. God expects his people to be different to be distinct and you see that very clearly in the Old Testament with Israel all kind, if you read the Old Testament law and you think what are all these rules about what you can eat what you can wear what type, you can't make certain things all these rules about what kinds of birds you can or can't eat what kinds of insects you can or can't eat why is that there so that they would stand out even their haircuts were different but the men couldn't shave the corners of their sideburns so that they would stand out in the world Today, we're not subject to the law of Moses, but we are subject to the law of Christ who calls us to be distinct. God has children in every tribe and nation and people and tongue, but whatever culture they're coming from, we are united in our reverence for the word of God and in our pursuit of holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says strive. That's a strong word there. Fight, agonize. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So personally it means if you're not pursuing holiness in your own life, you're not headed for heaven. Not because you gain it, but because there's no evidence that you're a new creation. But corporately, I think it also applies to, to the church. As we pursue holiness, the world sees the Lord. They may reject it, but they see a difference. They see a distinction, and that, I think, is Paul's heart for the church. 
He's wrapping up the body of, 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 of this letter to a young new church, but his heart is to see them continue to thrive in honoring God and in being effective in Christ's purposes. And that should be our desire too. It should be your desire for this church, should be your desire for any other church you hear about. Those of you who are members of our church, you have an active part to play in this. You help our church stay on course when you promote the proclamation of the word of God, when you sit there as a, as a discerning listener, and when you walk in holiness so that we as God's people stand out and bear testimony to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I think it's an old German phrase that said, show me a redeemed life and I'll hear about your redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it would be a beautiful thing to know the church today that exists directly as a result of Paul's ministry, but those churches have gone. And that should be a sobering thought for all of us. We, we go to or hear about funerals and we remember that we all die. And in light of death, we, we make changes to our lives. Well, hearing that churches eventually will die, we pray you would keep us faithful, help us make the changes that we need to make as a church and as Christians individually to trust in Christ. You've given us your very self, your very nature. You've given us power within. You've given us an intercessor, a helper, a guide. And yet so many times we quench him and we say, let me do it my way. You've given us your word, your truth so accessible to us today because of men and women who sacrifice their life so that we can have it in our own language. Forgive our pride, Lord. Forgive our arrogance. Forgive the times when we see the success of the world or of worldly methodologies and stop being faithful to your truth. Help us be a declaring church, a discerning church, and may we be a distinct church so that our children, our neighbors, our parents, our coworkers would see and hear the message of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.